This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Kumi Naidu, global activist and executive director of Greenpeace International. Since its founding more than 43 years ago, Greenpeace has worked around the world to catalyze an energy revolution, defend our oceans, protect the world's ancient forests, work for disarmament and peace, and to create a toxic-free future, including a campaign for sustainable agriculture. Greenpeace maintains a presence in more than 40 countries across the Americas, Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Pacific. Greenpeace speaks for more than 2.8 million supporters around the world and, to retain its independence, does not accept donations from governments or corporations. Kumi's background in activism at a young age in South Africa set him on a path that he continues as a trailblazer today. He is an iconic and influential spokesman for civil liberties and human rights, for environmental protection and international peacemaking and peacekeeping. Kumi is a Rhodes Scholar with a doctorate in political sociology from Oxford University. He has held numerous leadership positions in NGOs, civil rights movements and agencies, and within international alliances. He worked closely with Greenpeace for years before assuming its leadership role in 2009 developing the organization's work in Africa, and holding a board member position for Greenpeace Africa when it, opens its, when it opened its offices in 2008. Kumi, it is such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, David. It's good to join you. So you've assumed a great deal of responsibility and devoted yourself to advocacy and human rights at a very early age, before many adolescents have, have even uh, done things like learning how to drive. And um, I'm wondering, I would love to begin there in your story uh, of your early life uh, fighting apartheid and ask you how those uh, early experiences in your life developed you as a leader and pointed you toward the kind of work that you do today. Well, those early years were very formative. I always say most of what I've learned, which is useful for my work today, I learned in those early years of activism. Uh, we were first engaged in the national student protests against inequality in education. To be honest, at the age of 15, you don't fully understand everything that's happening. For example, I jokingly refer back to a, my first march where the slogan at the front of the march that we were shouting was we want equality by the time the slogan got to the back of the march uh, the younger kids were chanting we want a color tv because, <laughs> because kids in white schools had color tvs in south africa at that time and kids in black schools had no tvs right <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, but you know a lot of those earlier experiences taught you things like negotiation, compromise, uh, building alliances, recognizing that when you have a very big challenge such as climate change, it's really important for the diversity of civic uh, forces to have the ability to focus on the larger number of things on which they agree and to respectfully disagree on the smaller number of things where they have tactical strategic or even ideological differences. And that's a lot of 
you know, the experience that I've brought into, into Greenpeace. But my earlier activism was very grassroots community organizing in the civic movement, uh, neighborhood associations, if you want, and uh, in the youth movement. And of course, once I got to university, uh, I was uh, in the student movement as well. I, I was expelled uh, at the age of 16 from school, which uh, actually it was very traumatic uh, thing to happen at that age, uh, especially since, you know, education was seen as the way out of poverty and so on. And it was a, something that, you know, uh, particularly black parents really valued, uh, you know, in terms of um, always stressing the importance of education and so on. Um, so that experience of being expelled from school taught me the importance of uh, being willing to sacrifice, that the struggle for justice is not a popularity contest, that just because at the moment that you stand up for justice, the majority of the people don't understand and don't get what you are trying to uh, promote as a different way of thinking, doesn't mean it's wrong. We should remind ourselves that the leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States or the anti-apartheid movement or anti-colonial, anti-slavery movements, the campaign for women to have the right to vote and so on. When all these movements started, uh, the norm was, uh, was seen as uh, all of these things were acceptable. And people who stood up and said, the world can survive without slavery and it's wrong, or the world does not need colonialism and it's wrong. Uh, don't, you know, it's easy to forget that, you know, Martin Luther King was thrown in prison 41 times. Uh, you know, Mandela spent 27 years. So at the time when people uh, were standing up, they might be vilified and so on. And, but I think history then records people in a different way. And, and that's what I say often to young Activists, I say, you know, doesn't matter if the mainstream opinion around you might make you feel that you are an oddity or that what you are saying is out of the mainstream, uh, because if the science is clear, that your reasoning is clear and so on, then you have to believe that eventually we will be able to convince people that the levels of injustice in the world, economic injustice, social injustice, climate injustice, and so on, is just intolerable. And ultimately, you know, uh, justice will prevail. So all of those learnings I got from the early days. And the last thing I would say is that, you know, one of the things that people ask me often is, you know, you've been involved since the age of 15. How do you keep going now for, you know, just over 35 years? And, and, and how do you keep your motivation, you know, going? And, and I, like many other activists in the South African liberation struggle, you know, were inspired by leaders and fellow activists who were willing to sacrifice everything, you know. Uh, Mandela himself was such an inspirational example, you know, to all of us uh, about fighting for justice with the spirit of love and understanding. And uh, and so uh, I often end my speeches with telling the story, which is intended to be motivational, but actually is a sad story, uh, which goes like this. 
when I was 22 years old and I was fleeing South Africa into exile, my best friend at that time was a guy called Lenny Naidu. And, uh, and Lenny and I um, had known each other for several years before then. And he was a very philosophical guy. So in my last conversation I had with him at the age of 22, he asked me, Kumi, what is the biggest contribution we can make to the course of justice and the course of humanity? And I said, well, that's a simple question, giving your life. And he said, you mean going, participating in a demonstration and getting shot and killed, which was what was happening in South Africa on a weekly basis at that time. And I said, I guess so. And he said, no, it's not giving your life, Kumi, but it's giving the rest of your life. I was 22 years old at that time. My friend Lenny was way ahead uh, of me and others around us. He was the first environmentalist I met. Uh, I jokingly say that he was probably at that stage one of uh, only a thousand voluntary vegetarians on the entire African continent. He was, quite, he was quite a special person. And then, of course, we fled into exile in different directions. And then two years later, while I was at Oxford University, I got a call that my friend Lenny and three young women from my home city in Durban had been brutally murdered. There were so many uh, bullets in their bodies, their parents you know, couldn't recognize them. And, of course, I thought about our last conversation and this distinction between giving your life versus giving the rest of your life. In reality, uh, it doesn't take too much of skill to go and take part in a march and be at the wrong place at the wrong time and, and lose your life. What really takes perseverance and courage is maintaining a level of passion, engagement, and commitment for as long as those injustices exist. So essentially what my friend Lenny was saying is the struggle for justice, whether it's social justice, economic justice, political justice, climate justice, these struggles are marathons and not sprints. So whenever I, I hit my low moments, of which there are many, because the truth is, you know, while we might be winning many battles, we are still losing the war. Uh, uh, and, and so I always, you know, draw energy from that last conversation with my friend who gave his life to end the apartheid system. Uh, and, and I take a lot of sort of comfort of, of knowing that um, by staying the course, by not wavering from it, by being committed to it, you are making the biggest contribution. And, um, and also, I mean, in my case, I, I buried a lot of friends and comrades during the liberation struggle in South Africa. And, and of course, you know, having that memory and that commitment to their lives and to the memory of their lives uh, is also a strong motivation to continue to fight as hard as it's possible to create a more just, peaceful, equitable and sustainable world. Thank you for sharing that. I, I so resonate with what you said in the, in the sense that often the motivation that we have to do this work comes from these profound relationships that we've had with others in the cause and um, it's sometimes hard to express but that was beautifully expressed um, I wanted to ask you you know one of the fascinating things about your trajectory also is you know moving from work that was focused in one place then onto the global stage and to trying to really transform things all around the world and then with such a huge cause 
um, in the in the struggle uh, around climate change. And um, but I wanted to ask you about your period of exile in England and then your return to South Africa, and perhaps how that uh, to ask you did that have an impact on how you saw South Africa in context with the rest of the world? What did you uh, bring out of that exile experience when you came back? That that's really my question. Well, the experience of being a student away from home when what was happening at home was extreme repression. My younger brother, for example, was uh, arrested and held without trial for almost a year uh, during that time. Uh, I used a lot of my time in the, in, 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 when I was out of the country uh, to you know, mobilize and contribute to the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, that was you know, pretty strong in the United States, uh, Britain, and elsewhere. Uh, and of course, I, I interacted with people from different parts of the world who are undergoing uh, major struggles for uh, justice against military dictatorships, you know, in Chile at that time, and so on. And and what I came to realize, well, you know, when you're living in a pressure cooker type situation like apartheid South Africa. It's so easy to think that you're the only people that are suffering, you know what I mean? And so being outside the country was really helpful for me to shift me from having a theoretical adherence to the notion of international solidarity to really internalizing it. That was one major change. The second thing is uh, one of the most beneficial things for me was uh, being with a lot of talented Africans from all over the continent. And, uh, and and I always say that, you know, I left uh, Durban for South Africa, uh, sorry, Durban uh, in South Africa for Oxford as a South African, but I came back home as an African, you know, somebody who had a continental commitment to what was happening. Because, yes, it's true that apartheid South Africa had a lot of injustices, but clearly many parts of Africa then and now still continue to suffer major uh, injustices. And the third thing that I took away from my exile years was the importance of the global for the national. So what I mean by that is uh, I began to realize that, you know, even if you had a government that was genuinely committed to a fair trading system and, a, and, and, and was efficient, effective, non-corrupt government. National governments, with the exception of some powerful governments like the United States, really do not have the ability to shape their trading strategy because these things are decided at the global level. Uh, you can't solve climate change as a national issue. These are issues that don't respect national boundaries and so on. And and the slogan that I, I, I learned in 1992 uh, was, well, well, I heard it for the first time actually when I was, during my time as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, I also was invited for a year as a visiting scholar to Yale University in Connecticut. And during that time, I heard uh, the, the slogan, think global, act local. Right. And what was behind that slogan was, irrespective of the issue that you were trying to tackle at the local or national level, you needed to better understand our global power, global discourse, global institutions, 
shape what you can or cannot achieve at the national level. However, I began to realize that one of the ironies of the moment of history that we live in is precisely when some countries were getting democracy for the first time, like in South Africa or the successor states of the former Soviet Union and so on, real power was shifting from the national to the global level because, you know, you can't address, you know, global currency management as a national issue. These things are... And so, so some of us, particularly from developing countries, started saying, well, hang on a minute. If we think globally and we act solely locally, and if real power is shifting from the local and national level to the global levels, then we will be removing ourselves from where real power increasingly resides if we are going to make big change. So... Uh, I was inspired by a feminist in India called Devaki Jain, who said, you know, maybe what we need to do is think locally in terms of what our needs, what we need to achieve and all, and act globally, if in fact, so she turned the slogan, you know, upside down. And I, I, my own view, of course, is that we don't have the luxury of choosing. We have to think globally, think locally, think nationally on the one hand, and we have to act globally, nationally and locally on the other, we, we don't have the option of cherry picking which levels that we actually fight for, uh, you know, fight for justice. We have to be engaged in all the levels. And often as an activist, you have a challenge of dealing with the proportionality of how much do you put into, you know, global efforts versus national efforts versus global, uh, lo local efforts. So, so that I think would be one of the things that my time at, uh, you know, the three years that I was outside of the country helped me um, sort of learn and and internalize as a as an approach of, to activism. Very profound lessons, I might say. The um, you know, I want to come back to your original story about the march, uh, where you know you start off. Uh, people say we want equality, and then at the back of the line, it's we want a color TV. I, I find that. Uh, really, it's of course humorous, but there's also a very powerful truth in it. And I wanted to ask you about this. So, um, a lot of your work reminds me of this quote of Upton Sinclair: it "says that it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it." And uh, I think, as I think about Greenpeace's work, you know, and a lot, so much of it is captured in this in this trade-off between the short-term, you know, economic gain, the, we could represent that with the color TV, and the long-term uh, uh, in which we're all in this together, and it's about equality. And um, I wonder uh, how you see that today. How, how does Greenpeace and how do you uh, work to get people to see beyond the local to the global and the long-term? Well, one of the problems with early environmentalism, of which there are still remnants today, is that the struggle for environmental justice was put as something that was in competition for the struggle for economic justice. And when I started at Greenpeace, one of the questions that was asked in my first week of, uh, you know, introductory interviews with the global media, people say, oh, you have a background in gender equality, human rights, democracy, anti-poverty, so you're abandoning those movements to go to the environmental side. 
And my comment was the struggle to end global poverty, human rights, and so on, on the one end, and the struggle to ensure sustainability and particularly to avert catastrophic climate change can, must, and should be seen as two sides of the same coin. And it is wrong to say that, in fact, these two things are always in competition. Today, we live in a world where 1,6 billion people do not have access to a single light bulb, right? Those people are often living in uh, rural areas, in small numbers, uh, and so on. And they have been shut out of the energy access opportunities that many people living in urban areas often take for granted. And we have seen at Greenpeace how, in fact, if you say, well, let's look at how do we set up, as we did in India, in a village called Darnai, how do you set up a micro-solar grid, for example, so that people have energy access, which is their right to have it, but you do it through a clean technology on the one hand. And, and on the other hand, how do you do that in a way that you're thinking about how many jobs can you create, what are the small economic opportunities that can emerge out of uh, electrifying a community that was off the grid for decades and decades. And what we saw in this village in India, for example, not only did we provide electricity through a clean option without further emissions, but doing that saw women being safer at nights, uh, moving in the community. So women's empowerment was announced. Uh, uh, a agrabati or sense stick making, incense stick making business was started by one cooperative. A bangle making business was started by another cooperative. And that community, which relies on highway uh, traffic where they run their food and other stalls, now could run those stalls for into the evening, whereas before they couldn't because they didn't have electricity. So, so what I'm saying is, it is a myth to say that development has to be in a counter to um, uh, environmental concerns. I do think that the notion of growth that we have because, you know, often there's a tendency to equal growth with development. But the reality today, most of the growth that we have is jobless growth. It's growth without equity. In fact, it's growth that actually promotes inequality. We have the dichotomy of the 1% versus the 99%. A handful of people actually control uh, our economic life as well as our key decisions. I mean, that is why today I describe the United States as the best democracy money can buy. And if you look at which money buys that influence, right, it's disproportionately oil, coal, gas, nuclear, military, and other sort of polluting industries. And, and so, you know, democracy was supposed to balance the wallet with the ballot, meaning the power of rich people was supposed to be balanced with the voices of ordinary people. And let's be blunt about it. That democracy is not delivering that. And, and, and the truth is, when we have growth, it is 
the 1% of society that's benefiting from that growth with very, very, very little trickling down to the majority of people. So uh, just because you build a big infrastructure project uh, and you say, well, oh, it's very good for jobs and all, quite often big infrastructure projects, the jobs are only there at the front end. If you build a nuclear power plant, which is a bad idea for multiple reasons, but if you were to do that, yes, at the beginning, there'll be some construction jobs, but once it's done, right, um, you know, it's uh, a smaller number of high-end jobs that are available. In fact, when Greenpeace and its allies in Germany convinced uh, Chancellor Merkel and the German government to uh, close down their nuclear and move in the direction of renewables, uh, one of the most persuasive arguments was putting the figures of employment on the table. You know, where we said, listen, nuclear as well as fossil fuels uh, receive not billions, but trillions of dollars of taxpayer-funded subsidies. And uh, the renewable energy sector, as cumulatively anyway, and even if you look at it in current-day comparison, is still receiving a fraction of those subsidies. Because today, as you and I speak, $1,4 trillion of taxpayer money goes towards subsidizing fossil fuel projects globally, right? And, and we don't have anything in that ballpark in terms of renewable uh, energy. So when we said, well, look, uh, nuclear today employs 30,000 people and solar and wind is employing close to 350,000 people, we not want to go for something that's cleaner, safer, more secure, and is renewable. It'll be there forever. Uh, when in the process of doing the right thing environmentally, we can also generate more jobs in a uh, in an economy that's driven by clean, green, renewable-based energy. So this is, I think, again, one of the really inspiring things about your work is the vision for um, the way that you've shifted the focus onto the developing world and really advocated for a new lens to see development, that development, if it's done right, can promote social justice, and, um, and that that's really the frontier of this work. Um, I'd love to ask you about another phrase that I've heard you use, which I think is very interesting, and ask you how it connects to this, which is the concept of what you call climate apartheid. Can you tell us about that? So one of the terrible injustices in the world today is that the people that have been least responsible for carbon emissions are the ones that are paying the first and most brutal price in terms of climate impacts. So if you look at people who live in the coastal villages of Bangladesh or people who live in small island states in the Pacific or people who lost their lives in large numbers in Darfur, a conflict that was the first major resource war brought about as a result of climate impacts and so on. Uh, when you look at uh, people who are operating uh, in those communities, some of them actually emitting almost no carbon because they are off the grid, they're poor, they're unemployed, and they're living more subsistence uh, lifestyles. But if we look at where the major historical accumulation 
and, and let's be clear, I'm talking about how the problem since we started burning oil, coal and gas has accumulated. There's no question that most of what we call today the developed countries built their economic hegemony or economic dominance based on dirty brown fossil fuel based uh, economic frameworks. And, and, and they come from one part of the world, which has a particular demography. And then if you look at the people in parts of the world who are paying the first and brutal price, are actually from Africa, Asia, uh, the Pacific, the Arab world, and so on. And it is in that context that, you, that I use the phrase climate apartheid. That in fact, it is not fair that people that have not contributed uh, to emissions or have hardly contributed to emissions are the ones that should have to pay with their lives first. And where the very governments that created the problem and the very companies that created the problem are not only, uh, well, they now all say that climate change is real and they have to address it and so on in one voice. But on the other hand, they are clinging on and fighting hard to maintain their $1.4 trillion in taxpayer-funded subsidies on the one hand. If you took out the subsidies out of the equation, within 20, you know, literally within a short space of time, you will see solar, wind, geothermal, other uh, renewable technologies being able to compete very, very strongly with um, fossil fuels. In fact, now, even with just a minuscule fraction of um, subsidies that goes to renewable energy, uh, we are seeing that solar and wind prices are coming down drastically. And that's been without any serious political will on the part of governments. And, and let's be blunt about it, right? The problem we have is that too many of our governments have been captured by those very economic interests. Today, in too many countries, those that hold real power are not the people who are formally elected, but those that buy those elections for them. And yeah, yeah, would include, you know, if you want to look at uh, President George Bush's victory over Al Gore, you know, that election was bought lock, stock and barrel by the oil, coal and gas industry. And history will show that President Bush in the White House uh, faithfully served the interests of that constitu cons uh, constituency that got him into power. And that is not good for democracy, it's not good for the environment, and it's certainly not good for creating a more equal and balanced society and world. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange.
now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Kumi Naidu, Executive Director of Greenpeace International. So let me ask you this question. I, I heard you give um, make a very funny uh, remark uh, along these lines, and, and um, you were comparing your leadership with uh, uh, others uh, in you know the social justice movement, and talked about you know people associate Martin Luther King with having a dream, and you said that people say that Kumi is a man who has a nightmare, <laughs> and we we know that's not true though. We know that's not true because I believe that you and Greenpeace have a very compelling and powerful and positive dream for the world. So as you look at these challenges that we face, which do seem to be very entrenched, I want to ask you this question. Tell us, uh, in terms of the landscape right now, what do you feel most worried about, but also what do you feel most hopeful about? Well, I think leadership is about not lying to people and telling people the uncomfortable and inconvenient truths, even if people don't want to hear them. And the reality is that on climate, we are running out of time very, very fast. The window of opportunity is fast closing. And there is no nice way you can give that message, right? So I feel that leadership calls upon somebody in the role that I've had as the head of Greenpeace now for almost six years is to find that right balance between being honest, straight, and, 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 and speaking truth to power on the one hand, but doing it, of course, in a way that encourages people to believe that their contribution, their participation, their voice, their activism, their con financial contributions to movements and so on, all of these things actually can make a difference, is the only thing that's going to make a difference, actually, uh, given the powers that be, and and that they should be more but but you know you can't tell people for example ah it doesn't matter we've got another 20 years before emissions can peak when the science is saying that emissions need to peak now right so so i think that you know um even though i say the story and i say it quite deliberately and use it quite a lot of speeches and so on the if the im of it is to be inspire people into action and by taking uh, you know what the I think the British say taking the piss and I think what the Americans no I think maybe the Americans say taking the piss and the British say taking the mickey uh, out of you know like not taking yourself too seriously it's easy for me to say it and, and I do it quite deliberately to say Listen, it is a challenge, and I, I want people to understand that it is a challenge of being able to inspire people into action, making sure people feel that we're moving forward and so on, on the one end, but doing it in an honest way, telling people, actually, yes, for example, I very publicly say that Greenpeace is winning many important and big and significant battles, but if I'm being brutally honest, we are losing the war overall. And, and, and being able to say that, I think, is good leadership. It's being honest with people. Because I don't want to have history record us as having told people, well, you know, you can continue to contribute in X, Y, and Z ways, and it's all going to be okay, when it's clear that it's not going to be okay because uh, we cannot change the science 
we have to understand that nature does not negotiate and we need to understand that all that we can change is the political will to align what we do economically, socially, morally, and so on with the science and what the science is saying. And if science is not sufficient to guide us, then uh, Mother Nature itself, if you look at the last 10 years, we've had almost a 100% increase in extreme weather events. Now, you have to really be suffering from a terrible, terrible case of cognitive dissonance for you not to be able to see that, one, we are running out of time, that climate change is not something that may hit us in the future, it's hitting us now. And by the way, not only in poor countries, but also in, in wealthy countries, as Hurricane Sandy showed in the United States recently. Um, so, so it's a bit of a challenge because, you know, it's easier to be a leader. You stand up and say, you know, like how our politicians do in elections. Opinion polls are against them and so on. They will always say, we are going to be taking the White House or taking, you know, the, this election and, and so on. Uh, and, 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 you know, often political campaigns today, election campaigns, sadly, is not about honest conversations with our people, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in Australia, or whether it's in Africa, or whether it's in Asia. Politician, political leaders feel that they always have to be saying, oh, things are going real good, things are going real good, because they feel that if they are honest with people about the challenges, then uh, it will count against them. And I don't think that that's an honest approach to leadership, and that's why I think walking the line between speaking truth to power, not lying about how serious the scale of the problem is on the one hand, but doing it in an inspirational way that motivates people, that doesn't disempower and so on, is a skill of leadership that I think is necessary right now. And uh, the sooner we have more and more leaders exhibiting that approach, I think we'll have a better chance to reversing the very dangerous trajectory that we're on towards catastrophic climate change. Yes, a, a very, very difficult balance to maintain, but one that I think that uh, you're certainly a, a terrific role model. Um, for people around the world um, in terms of how you strike that balance. Uh, we're coming to the end of our, of our dialogue today, and um, I wanted to, since we're on this theme of leadership, ask you uh, to uh, render some uh, big-picture advice about that uh, process of staying inspired, about that process of not um, giving up hope, especially for the many young leaders and social entrepreneurs that are likely to hear this interview. Um, as a point of departure, I wanted to offer you uh, a reflection. I heard you talk very compellingly about uh, a, a letter that you received from your brother when he was in prison that motivated you. And, uh, and he said, I think, that the struggle for justice does not move forward because of the immense sacrifices of the few but because of the modest sacrifices of the many. And then, of course, you have reminded us again and again about uh, the importance of engaging ordinary people uh, in this work and how that relates to our belief in the possibility of change, which I think is, is um, what you're talking about now, that we can confront these difficult problems without losing our sense of optimism and hope and energy. Can you leave us with some ideas about that? Well, I think the, there are a couple of things that we need to get much better at doing. One is um, 
we have to recognize that there's a large numbers of people in the world that do not have access to education. Certainly, the majority do not have access to university or to any form of further education. And therefore, you know, we need to always have that in the back of our minds about how we communicate, how we engage with people. Because, you know, quite often in the environmental movement and other movements as well, once you start getting into the nitty-gritty and the conceptual stuff and so on, you start talking like politicians, right? And you start talking in ways that the language actually disempowers people. So the one very, very important thing is, I'm not saying we must be simplistic, right? Uh, I'm saying we need to be accessible and simple in the way we engage people. Because, uh, let me give you a very practical example. We had a program at Greenpeace that was called SAGE, Sustainable Agriculture and Genetically Engineered uh, Foods, right? Pushing back on the contamination of our food system by the uh, big agribusiness, uh, such as the Monsantos of the world and so on. And, uh, but think about that, Sustainable Agriculture and Genetic Engineering, you know? The acronym might have sounded nice, SAGE, but, but actually now that program is called Food for Life. Three simple words that people can understand. Uh, just calling it Food for Life makes it more accessible. People can understand, okay, there's an issue here about food security, there's an issue here about food sovereignty. They might not use those words, but they concepts behind the words. So that's one change. We need to be careful not to project our consciousness on the people that we are trying to um, get to join us, right? The, th the second thing is we have to have an approach that understands that different people can do different things. Not everybody is going to want to climb an oil rig in the Russian Arctic and risk, you know, three months or so or more in prison doesn't mean that you, if you don't want to do that, you cannot be involved. Because a movement, and the kind of movement that we have to build has to be the biggest movement that we've ever seen in the history of the planet. Because, let's be very clear here, this struggle is not about saving the planet. The planet actually does not need saving. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. On the path that we are on, and if we will continue to warm up the planet to a point where humanity cannot exist here, the planet will still be here. It will be bruised, battered, and scarred by humanity's crimes on it. But actually, if we are no longer here, the porous will leap, the oceans will uh, recover, and so on. So the struggle is not about saving some ethereal thing called the planet. This struggle is fundamentally about whether humanity can fashion a way to coexist in a mutually interdependent relationship with nature for centuries and centuries to come. Put differently, this struggle is about securing our children and their children's future. Now, even framing it that way, rather than saying save the climate, if you say save our children and grandchildren's futures, then somebody who's a grandparent or somebody who's a parent might stop and take notice, what's that got to do with my child or my grandchild? And, and might get engaged. But if you just say save the climate, 
it's it's too abstract for most ordinary people to get their heads around on a day-to-day basis. But if you say the struggle for climate justice is fundamentally about a struggle to secure our children and their children's future, and it's fundamentally about intergenerational justice, because sadly the current leaders of the world, most sectors, and certainly in government and business, are living as if we don't have children and their children coming after them. What, and what's beautiful about that thought is that it really peels back all the layers of why you engage in this work in the first place. Um, it gets to the root of something very important, you know. And, and also, you know, uh, you know, they say all uh, politics is local, and the feminist movement told us the personal is the political. And 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 you know, when you look at it, actually. All politics and political engagement and so on is fundamentally personal, right? Because you have to feel that the injustice before me is so great and so unacceptable, I'm prepared to put my life on the line if necessary. And that's an incredibly powerful personal act of courage. However, I am very strongly saying, though, that if somebody is an artist or a musician or a sports person, they have all the ability to shift constituencies that they have access to, uh, people who respect them and so on. And, you know, like, uh, for example, a very famous um, musician in the UK joined one of our actions and was in prison and so on with us in Greenland, right, some years ago as part of the Save the Arctic campaign. And and that was great that he did that. And, he, you know, people didn't know uh, who he was. He did it like, you know, he very quietly came and joined. He was an assistant cook on the ship. And while he was in prison in Greenland, somebody asked him about, hey, do you know this band, one of the uh, uh, prison wardens? And he was a member of this band. And this person was like, you know. Uh, so, so, yes, it was great to have him there. But if he chose not to do that action, but to compose songs and uh, that tell the message of the danger of climate change and use his talent, that would be as powerful, if not more powerful, a contribution. And then, you know, sometimes some people might be have living circumstances where they are not mobile. And if they can mainly be involved as cyber activists and do online activism, that's also fine. So we need a broad menu of different options about how people can contribute. And we should value each of those contributions in equal ways. Whether somebody voluntarily writes a letter to the editor of the newspaper, or whether somebody uh, is willing to spend uh, time you know, in, in, in prison if necessary because of the act of peaceful civil disobedience, both those acts should be equally valued and not uh, nothing should be undervalued. Because I think that, uh, you know, if you add, for example, in Greenpeace, only people, volunteers, only people who could climb, uh, you know, who are climbers, right? But if we didn't have people who were good communication specialists, good, um, you know, administrators, HR, uh, human resource professionals, and so on, we won't be able to run the organization. You need to have a diversity of 
talents and skills and and we should therefore be able to have every parent grandparent young person and so on uh, to recognize that time is running out and they better stand up now because when our children look us in the eye 10 years from now when the writing will be much much more stronger on the wall clearer on the wall they're going to say mommy daddy grandma grandpa what did you all do when the scientists told you that we had to get off dirty energy and move to clean energy to protect our futures and i want to hope that the majority of parents if that question is posed in the world from the united states to africa should be able to say i did a lot of things and this is what i did and i think if we are not able to answer that question in the affirmative then it's only fair then for our children and grandchildren to say you all failed us and let's be blunt about it none of us want to hear that so i say particularly to the current generation of adult leaders in business and in government and in civil society you got to step up you got to speak out you got to make the changes necessary even if those changes are painful challenging and difficult because what is at stake here is the survival of humanity on this planet and it's going to take particular courage particular vision um and a deep sense of possibility and belief that we can make change if there is one thing i learned from the liberation struggle in south africa is that change becomes possible when people believe that change is possible and we need to get billions of people in the world who are willing to act with courage and who believe that we can change from an economy that's driven by dirty brown fossil fuel based energy to an economy that's driven by clean green renewable based energy and we can make that transition such that we have both a win for the environment but also a win for the economy a win for equality a win for for greater empowerment and we should not believe that those two major challenges that humanity face environment and uh, sustainable development can be um uh, treated as two competing um uh, global challenges we have to understand what is the synergy and intersection and respond with creativity innovation and courage i i would end by saying that i refuse to accept that the world we live in today is the best that humanity can fashion and design for itself anybody who says that the world we live today is largely okay with just a few problems here and there and a few hot spots is somebody who should not be in leadership uh, should be somebody who uh, withdraws from the public uh, space because basically it's a statement of a lack of vision a a, a lack of uh, of of uh, uh compassion because how can we tolerate a world where as martin luther king put it where we take necessities from the majority to give luxuries to the few uh, and and my main message to young people is uh a message also from martin luther king which is uh speaking in the 60s uh he was concluding his speech and he said as i come to the conclusion of my speech 
I want to record that today there's a very popular word in modern child psychology called maladjusted. And then he went on to say, you know, most of us want to live well-adjusted lives. We don't want to suffer from schizophrenia or other mental illnesses. However, he said, I refuse to be well-adjusted to racism. I refuse to be well-adjusted to the idea that we can have a system that takes necessities from the few to give luxury, sorry, necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. And I think we now must say, in that vein, young people need to say, we refuse to accept that we can continue on the path that we are when we know that path threatens our ability to survive. The other thing I would say to young people though is, the journey will be challenging, the journey will be difficult, there are many people making huge amounts of money from the current energy system, from the current economic system, who are fighting tooth and nail to hang on to those privileges. And they are fighting hard. They, uh, they control many governments. So we are seeing people being arrested, draconian laws being passed to restrict the space for activism and so on. And I would say, whatever repression comes at you, Mahatma Gandhi gives you a very philosophical and positive way of uh, reading that. Gandhi once said, first, they ignore you, then they laugh or ridicule you, then they fight you, and then you win. <laughs> the good thing is, they are not laughing at us, they are not ignoring us, they are fighting us, and they are fighting us real hard, and let's hope if Gandhi was right, it means that we are just one step away from winning, and by winning I mean creating a world that is significantly more equitable, sustainable, uh, and just, because we live in a world with a level of inequality that is completely unacceptable. And in part, that level of inequality is what is driving the overconsumption that we see in the world today, in the parts, in some parts of the world, and the serious underconsumption in other parts of the world. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, so much for that inspirational uh, message to leave our listeners with. I, I want to remind our listeners. Um, many of whom I'm sure have been reinforced in their belief today and maybe some that have been turned into believers today, um, that they can support your work through greenpeace.org. urge them to do that. We're going to put up uh, links to your uh, website on the podcast. The story of our future is being written now. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kumi. God be with you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.